Good morning and welcome to Elementary, probably Manchester's best student-run science-themed radio show. As always, I'm Fergus. I'm Karis. I'm Joe. And today we've got a guest with us. I am Colby. Great. So welcome, Colby's, Colby. Yeah, welcome. Uh, Colby's another one on our science communication course. So I'm going to go straight over to Karis without any further ado to introduce this week's element for you all. Okay, so today's element is uranium. That's a silver grey metal and its atomic number is 92, which is the heaviest element we've done so far on this show, which is very exciting. It's uh, radioactive, I'm sure you know, because all of its isotopes, which are the different forms, are unstable. So if you didn't know, radioactivity is when the nucleus of an atom is unstable, usually because it's too big. And so particles are released, which releases radioactive energy as well. I'm sure someone chemistry could explain that better than i could uh the half- <laughs> no th- that's basically it so as you go across and down the periodic table the nucleuses nuclei rather get nucleus. bigger <laughs> nucleuses dearie me get bigger and bigger and bigger and if you've got too many protons and neutrons it they they tend not to want to clump together very well so when you get past a certain point all of the atoms past that are unstable in all of their forms so the the different forms the different isotopes that's just different neutrons different numbers of neutrons we talked a little bit about that last week with chlorine but with uranium it's notable because all the different forms are radioactive so all the different forms of the nucleus are unstable unlike something like carbon where you've got carbon 12 the common form which is completely fine and then you've got carbon 13 which is a rare form which is radioactive with uranium they're all radioactive Okay, yeah. So the half-life of uranium, which is the length for it takes for half of the amount to decay, uh, ranges from 159,200 years to 4.5 billion years, depending on the specific isotope, which is quite a big range. It was first discovered in mineral form, which is called pitch blend, and this was in 1789 by, I'm going to print awful this pronunciation, but Martin Heinrich Klaproth who named it after the planet, um, Uranus, obviously. But then it was first isolated in 1841 by Eugene Melchior Pilligot. But its radioactivity wasn't then discovered till 1896 by Henry Becquerel, who you might have heard of, because he went on to win the 1903 Nobel Prize in Physics, along with Marie and Pierre Curie, obviously also worked on radioactivity. Um, uranium has a very long history. Um, we're going to hear more about it during the rest of the show where we're going to talk about nuclear weapons and nuclear power. Exciting stuff. We're going to have a chat to Colby now about uh, the use of uranium as a fuel source. So I don't know, Colby, if you just want to introduce yourself and say how you got interested in nuclear. Sure thing. Well, uh, I'm Colby and sustainability and uh, making a clean energy infrastructure for civilization has always been of interest to me. And uh, how I got into nuclear was uh, basically looking into how to transition off of fossil fuels and looking at to the options of uh, renewables and um, started doing the math on a lot of things and discovered that a lot of the claims and ideas surrounding new, uh, re- so-called renewables uh, don't actually add up as well as people would like to think. And at the same time, a lot of claims against nuclear energy also don't add up as well. So I arrived at the conclusion that uh, nuclear energy is our best option and really deserves uh, a very much honest consideration. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah. Fantastic. So, uh, I guess 
What, so for anyone who's unsure, I think you've probably heard of nuclear as being a possible energy source. We use it a little bit in the UK, but not a huge amount. They use it a lot more in France and right. some other countries. Uh, but basically, when you you can use the radioactive decay of elements that releases a lot of energy through through that process of fission, and so you can you can use that to create electricity and things like that. That's that's the very, very bare bones <laughs> explanation. Uh, but I guess what a lot of people will be thinking is when they think of nuclear, they think of radioactive, they think of things like Chernobyl, uh, Fukushima, Three Mile Island. Doesn't that prove that nuclear power is dangerous? Um, well, it's understandable why people would be concerned or scared of nuclear power when they see events like that, which have happened in the past. But uh, what we have to understand is one these uh those events were uh, had occurred with much older technology mm -hmm. and any nuclear power plant we'll be building today are uh, constructed with passively safe uh designs which basically means um you do not need an active component to keep them from melting down uh you, you don't need operator intervention um there's uh these designs basically shut themselves down if there's ever a problem and then they have enough water or coolant or redundant safety systems to keep uh, the reactor cooling, to keep um, the, the fuel intact uh, after that occurs. So essentially, the reactors we'd be building today, the reactors going up at Hinkley C, they would have been able to survive the conditions that led to the meltdown at Fukushima. And the fact that passively safe designs also mean that operators, even if you have you know some ridiculous hypothetical where terrorists took over a control room of a nuclear power plant with passively safe reactors, they would not be able to get it to melt down from the control room. There's no sequence of buttons you can push that would cause a problem, which is what happened at Chernobyl. Even if they just went in and mashed the keyboard, there's that many fail -safes. There's Yeah, yeah. In fact, there was a, a test done in the US with what's called the integral fast reactor where they did just that. And um, the reactor, once the heat threshold got passed, the reactor shut itself down and they also cut power to the entire station. So without active power, it still was able to shut itself down and keep itself cool. Yeah. So the, the cool thing's important because that's, as we said, this fission process it releases a lot of energy that's that's what we want that's what we can use to generate electricity but if it gets out of hand you end up with a, a chain reaction thing and obviously a lot of heat is released which is why the coolant is important uh that... yeah and there's there's also chemical components to that too because uh in the, in the way the older reactors are designed you end up with a lot of hydrogen gas buildup if the rods get exposed and the explosion that actually causes the breach which releases the materials is often a hydrogen explosion which happens at fukushima because if you um, remember all back to our hydrogen episode <laughs> it is explosive so. podcast on spotify uh, yes <laughs> yes podcast and on spotify. i should also mention if you look at the statistics of human deaths per terawatt hour there's a lot of so terawatt hours a new unit of energy yes to... a unit of energy oh. <laughs> energy or power energy energy um yeah power is capacity yeah. so a terawatt of capacity would be uh power a terawatt hour which is quantified um with the unit mark is is energy and uh nuclear is actually the safest out of every energy source so if you look at all the disasters and externalities of, of human harm, you end up with uh, what's called the death print of energy sources. And these have been quantified and studied, um, and nuclear always comes out as the safest. How are solar panels killing people? 
Uh, well, if you think about in uh, in the United States, there's about 300 deaths a year from people just falling off roofs. A fraction of that are you know, you have solar installers installing uh, solar roofs. Roofing is a very dangerous job. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most dangerous occupations you could have. Um, and that plus there's construction accidents. You have very large infrastructure projects going up. You have to install more um, connectivity and grid. Uh, so the more construction you have and the more unstable environments, the more risk you uh, expose your, your workers to. So you wouldn't get solar panels then, is what you're saying? Uh, oh, that's... <laughs> I'd prefer if the entire grid just ran on nuclear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's the plants themselves, especially new ones that we're designing. They've got a lot of fail-safes in them that past ones might not have had. And, and even then, you know, past ones were... There were a lot of things that had to go wrong in order for things like the Three Mile Island incident. Absolutely. But what, but what about the the waste? So one another criticism of nuclear is that the waste that is produced is still radioactive, and then we have to work out what to yes. do with that. Yes, and uh, absolutely. And so every pretty much every energy source has waste, even solar and wind. There's uh, toxic components that go into solar panels. Uh, there's rare earth elements that are required, whether it's indium that, or cadmium or lead. Uh, not all those rare earth, but uh, there's, there's toxic waste that is produced from solar panels. There's also toxic waste from wind turbine manufacturing because there's about one ton of rare earth elements that go into every five megawatts of wind capacity. So ultimately, every, every energy source does have some waste component to it. Nuclear actually has the smallest waste footprint volume-wise. And if you really think about it, the lead that goes into solar panels, for instance, in 10,000 years, that lead is still going to be toxic. So we still have to contain that somehow. And um, that often happens by uh, putting it in landfills and burying it. Um, So with nuclear waste, we actually store it in these bomb-proof casks uh, that are designed to last well over a century. But the more interesting aspect of nuclear waste, assuming we're talking about the stuff that goes in and comes out of the reactors is that we have advanced reactor designs that can recycle this waste and actually get a lot more energy out of it. So the current reactor fleet we're using is only using about 1%, uh, give or take, of the actual potential energy in the fuel. Um, And there's reasons for that. It was just easier to design them that way. And um, at the same time, we have advanced reactors we could be building um, that would get lots, uh, a lot more of the energy out of it. Um, so uh, and, um, we call them breeder reactors or fast reactors, and they have a neutron uh, economy or a configuration where um, the neutrons hit uh, the other isotopes of uranium, bump them up to other elements that are, more, uh, that are then fizzle and then can, uh, can then be burned out in the fuel cycle. Um, these reactors are a bit more expensive to build, and uranium is very cheap, so a lot of the... Uh, previous decades of um, the nuclear industry just went for the cheaper reactors, and uh, we have, um, you know, it's it's not a large footprint. We have about in the, the U.S. Uh, multiple decades worth of um, nuclear power uh, has only yielded about a football field size uh, area of waste that stacks about um, under 50 meters high, which is something that could easily be buried in a mountain if we wanted to just bury it. But keep in mind that's fuel for future generations if we want it to be. Yeah. What, what would happen then instead of, so our hypothetical terrorists, they can't, they can't take control of the power plant itself. What would happen if they went and bombed, I don't know, one of these waste containers? Would that, 
So that's an interesting question. The interest you said the, it was bomb proof, though, didn't you? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So okay. there's um, like some really fun videos you can check out on YouTube where uh, back in like the 70s uh, in, in the US and um, we did testing on how, how robust these casks are. And that involved um, uh, <laughs> putting them on tra uh, trains and putting them on trucks. And uh, like there was one video of a rocket powered train that just slams into the thing at 90 miles an hour. Oh and uh, there's another one where they just... Uh, take it and then put it in another, another train car filled with diesel fuel and um, just light the diesel fuel and let that burn for a few hours and test to see if there's any leak. Um, so it's not, it's not like the Simpsons where you see green glow, you know, glowing ooze that's liquid that just yeah. you know, runs out. The, the, the fuel that comes out of reactors is solid ceramic coated in zinc inside these um, fuel bundles that are then inside these steel and concrete casks. So no three-eyed fish. Uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, okay. I've got one more question for you. you. You've convinced me nuclear is is safe. Yeah, fine, go for it. But is it is it necessary? Would it not be better to just go for uh, renewable source of energy? Because uranium, it's not a it's not a renewable source in a strict sense. Well, renewable is an interesting definition because uh, you know what 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 does that actually constitute? We, we would eventually <laughs> run out of uranium. Uh, not necessarily, actually. So uh, we have enough uranium in our oceans, if we use them in fast reactors, would last more than a million years to power the entirety of civiliz uh, human civilization. And if we don't figure out fusion in that time, we could always mine asteroids. Um, but, Casually you know... just mine asteroids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, a million years of technological advancement, hopefully. I, I'd, I'd hope we'd get to that point. Uh, to but at the same time, I like to actually separate what renewables are because it's the, the term defines a portfolio of technologies that are actually very vastly different from each other. Um, so some countries have a geological uh, favorability towards hydro. If they have a lot of water and they have a lot of... Uh, you know, terrain that is favorable to um, elevation changes that make makes hydro feasible. Um, Norway is an example of this. Scotland uh, as well. Yes, yeah. yes. Pretty um, good for it. <laughs> so hydro has been a very useful resource. It's um, it's been you know predominantly uh, assuming like assuming we're talking about electricity. It's been the uh, primary um, source of renewable energy out of the entire portfolio, um, and. Some countries that works, but other countries don't have those advantages, uh, whether it's terrain or, or water. And also, you know, there's arguments that hydro has this impact on the environment as well. I don't really advocate against hydro. I think, you know, it's if it wherever it is, it's, you know, if it's useful, it's great. Um, there is also a, a very unfortunate history of, of disasters with hydro. The worst energy disaster in history was a hydro dam failure in China um, called the Banqueo Dam. Um, but, uh, aside from that, there's geothermal and geothermal is, uh, certainly useful where it's, uh, available, but usually need a shallow heat bed. Um, so you're not, not drilling down too deep for it. Um, and that's also interestingly enough, uh, radioactive decay because most of the earth's heat is from radioactive decay elements. Uh, and we're kind of just, uh, treating the earth like a, big radiothermal generator <laughs> to tapping that down. Sneaky nuclear. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any renewable sources that you actively don't like? Um, so we, we get to solar and wind, which we, okay. you know, see going up and that has and a lot of support. And they're probably the ones that people think of 
I would say. If, you, if you say renewable energy, in my mind, I'm thinking yeah. solar panels, I'm thinking wind turbines. Yeah, because those are, you know, those have been certainly being, uh, getting built up a lot in the past few decades. And uh, the thing with solar and wind is they're intermittent. Um, so you have to wait for the wind to blow, you have to wait for the sun to shine on your panels. And even, even you know, if that's not a daily pattern, there's also seasonal changes. So you look at production patterns, uh, like for example, in the winter and you see solar goes down a lot and uh, wind doesn't always compensate for that. And even on an hour to hour basis, you don't have a complementary pattern where, you know, they actually quote balance each other out, which a lot of us would like to think happens, but that is not what's happening. And so what you end up with is you never really get sol just solar, just wind. You have to buffer it with another dispatchable source of energy, whether that's hydro or gas. Um, and unfortunately, since uh, there aren't that many grids in the world that can rely on hydro to do that, uh, a lot of grids end up relying on gas, which is a fossil fuel. So if we look at the full system, um, the reason why I'd advocate nuclear more than solar and wind is because nuclear, you can dispatch it and it runs, you know, aside from when you need to do maintenance and refuel it, it just runs constantly and it can go uh, more than a year or two without uh, needing to shut down and uh, interrupt its service. Where solar and wind, you have this chaotic pattern that needs to be uh, buffered with gas at all the time. And that's, you know, releasing carbon and fossil fuels. So and they're just not consistent then, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we're going to play everyone's favorite science game now science fact or science fiction. Woo. So, I reckon that Colby will probably know all of the answers to these, but yeah, you have probably. to be qu quiet at first if you know the answer. Let the others have a little think about it. So, how it works is I will say a statement and you have to say whether you think it's science fact or science fiction. That's that's how it works. It's quite a simple concept, but there we go. So my first one. Uranium is the heaviest primordial element. So primordial means it's existed in its current form since before the Earth was formed. Science fact or science fiction? Fact. I'm gonna, Straight in Well, there. I mean... <laughs> Since you talked about it at the start, I'm going to say fact. Well, we said it was... No, we didn't say... We said it was the heaviest that we'd covered so oh, far. Okay. okay. I didn't say it was... No, I'm going to say fact as yeah. well, anyway. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, Colby. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, when the supernova happens, there's a lot more he heavier elements, but they don't survive yeah. to, to today, so... Yeah, <laughs> it's... Of cool. course. <laughs> well, I'm saying it's a maybe fact, so it oh, probably no. is true, uh, but maybe not, but probably. So it is... It is quite so everyone's heavy. a winner. Everyone's a winner now. Everyone's yeah. a winner. Yeah. No, you, you, you are right. It's it's generally accepted as the heaviest primordial element. So it does decay naturally. So Colby pointed out that there is a difference between radioactive decay, as we've been talking about it, and radioactive fission in nuclear power plants. So that releases a lot of energy. Basically, what happens there is you bombard these already unstable nuclei with normally neutrons, so very, very small particles, and then that causes them to break apart into smaller atoms so there, there is there is a difference there uh so uranium does decay naturally but very very slowly as as we heard earlier the half-life is you know it can be hundreds of thousands of years to billions of years so because it's so long because it's comparable to how long the earth has been around for it means that that's why we still have uranium here on earth so there are heavier elements as colby said but they've already decayed so we can't find them it was thought for a while that there might be some plutonium still on Earth. Plutonium-244 has a half-life of 80 million years, so there 
might possibly be some around. And in the 1970s, they thought they detected some. So that's slightly heavier than uranium. So that would be the heaviest primordial. But that discovery could not be confirmed by newer, more sensitive measurements. So there was a paper in 2012 that used that used a technique called accelerator mass spectrometry, which is basically where you make the particles go really, 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 really fast, and then you separate them depending on their mass. And that couldn't confirm whether there was any plutonium. So there we go. It's it's a probably fact. Right. That reminds me of mass spectrometry. That's like in school. I remember doing that in school. And stuff yeah, like so yeah. mass spectrometry is any technique where you're separating... Uh, compounds depending on their mass so the way that accelerator does it apparently if you make them go really really fast that helps with spitting them up like a centrifuge basically yeah so that's yeah yeah, you you accelerate them in a centrifuge and then and then you use that okay great well done everyone second one uranium has been used uh to color glass green or yellow in so again repeat that again uranium has been used to color glass green or yellow in i don't know in in jewelry in I don't know what what else you use glass for. <laughs> bottles. <laughs> yeah, bottles. Uh, I don't know. Someone else go. I know it, so I don't want to like <laughs> say like you have to guess first. I'm gonna. I'll just go false because the first one was actually no. I'll go maybe. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this one is a yes or yes. A no. Okay, all right. I'm gonna say no. Science You're gonna fiction. say no. It's yeah. yes. It's actually a, a hobby of uh, some, some nuclear uh, enthusiasts to take a Geiger counter into mm. thrift shops uh, or, or secondhand stores and look for uh, antique uranium glass pieces because they actually do uh, get detected. Is yeah, that one of your so- hobbies? <laughs> uh, it would be maybe i don't know i haven't done it yet though <laughs> yeah so they're, they're generally seen as antiques now it's not used a huge amount but uranium glass typically has less than two percent added uranium although some pieces had up to 25 percent in the uh sort of victorian area around that well uh, that 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 level yeah I, i'd be more concerned about the chemical toxicity of ingesting uranium um uh, than necessarily the radiotoxicity but yeah uh, it, it's yeah. safe due to the the slow natural fission rate so you're not getting a yeah lot but of if you're like degree. drinking out of it do you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's not something you want to ingest but being on the outside since uh uranium's an alpha emitter which means it releases a very heavy particle the the actual damage of it doesn't get past like a piece of oh, paper yeah, fair. Yeah. so uh your skin will just take it and then it just sheds off so yeah so really don't don't the outside. don't drink any uranium right. but you can stand <laughs> you, next to it you don't want it inside sick. you <laughs> yeah disclaimer it, it was nicknamed uh vaseline glass in the 1930s because people thought the color of it resembled vaseline then looked a bit greener than it does now oh, okay. so they, they named it that it fell out of use during world war ii when the u.s government basically confiscated any uranium sources because they needed them for the manhattan project because they were trying to build the bomb which we'll get onto in a minute okay last one depleted uranium so that's uranium which has a lower so all all uranium is radioactive but uranium 235 is fissile whereas uranium 238 isn't so depleted uranium has a lower proportion of the the fissile the one that can be used in reactors than naturally occurring uh so depleted uranium I'm so confused right now you've okay. lost me oh, you've right. Lost me. right so there's there's different forms of uranium okay there's the the most common one and then yes. there's the one that is needed in for, for use in nuclear reactors and weapons yeah. and things like that depleted uranium has less of the one that's needed for reactions than naturally occurring. 
Okay. So you can think of it as less radioactive, even though the the common form is is still radioactive as well. But there we go. Anyway, depleted uranium is used as a shielding material to store radioactive material. Fact or fiction? Um, depleted uranium is used to store radioactive material. Yeah. So it um, is radioactive itself still. So something radioactive is used to store something yes, radioactive. Yes, correct. Um, that's, well, that that's is true, my that, statement. Yeah. I'm not saying whether it's correct. <laughs> if, that's true, that's, if that's true, that's pretty cool. That's I'm going to say false. Radioactiveception. I think. I'm going to say true. I'm just going yeah, to... Uh, I'm, I'm going to say true because there are vastly varying levels of radiation. And uh, depleted uranium is a very good, uh, good at blocking stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. Good logic there. So it's really dense. It's denser than lead. So it can be used to block more dangerous, more radioactive sources. It's also used in tank armor and in kinetic energy penetrators, which are ammunition designed to use speed to get through things like vehicle armor. So they're they're using it for defense and attack. So like a bullet or a cannonball, it's not exploding. It's just using sheer force to get through. So there we go. So lots of other uses of uranium there. I guess I'm going to talk about nuclear weapons. Yeah, so as well as being used as a uh, a fuel source, uh, nuclear has also been used as a weapon. Yes. So I'm just going to talk about how so nuclear weapons are. Basically, when a free neutron hits the nucleus of a fissile atom like uranium-235, the uranium nucleus splits into two smaller nuclei called fission fragments uh, plus more neutrons. Fission can be self-sustaining because it produces more neutrons of the speed required to cause new fissions. The, the U-235 nucleus can split in many ways, provided the atom, atomic numbers add up to 92 and the atomic masses add to 236. So that's uranium plus the extra neutron. So that's just a brief, very brief uh, summary of how the mechanism So works. that's exactly the same mechanism that's used in nuclear yeah. reactors yeah, to yeah, create yeah. fuel. So yeah, you've got this unstable, heavy nucleus. You attack it with some neutrons and it breaks up into two smaller parts. Yes. And then, obviously, from using that, they obviously developed the uranium bomb. Um, and this is... So it's using the energy released from this nuclear fission of uranium-235, uh, explosive device which is made simply by positioning two masses of U-235 so that... U-235 is uranium-235, just if you didn't follow. Yeah, and so the, so the 235 is the atomic weight. Yes. So that means it's got 235 protons plus neutrons added together. So yes. uh, 92 protons and whatever 235 minus 92 neutrons is so that so basically they can be forced together quickly enough and to form a critical mass and a rapid uncontrolled fission chain reaction that is not to say that this is an easy task to accomplish so first you must obtain enough uranium which is highly enriched to over 90 percent uranium 235 whereas natural uranium is only 0.7 percent uranium 235 so it's quite a big difference there and this enrichment is a very difficult task so it's it's a fact that has helped control that the proliferation of nuclear weapons so obviously the fact that it's so difficult to do that has actually in a way limited the use of nuclear weapons once the required mass is obtained it must be kept into in two or more pieces until the moment of detonation so then the pieces must be forced together quickly and in such a geometry that the generation time for fission is extremely short this leads to an almost instantaneous build-up of the chain reaction creating a powerful explosion before the pieces can fly apart Two hemispheres, which are explosively forced into contact, can then produce a bomb such as the one de- de- detonated at Hiroshima. Um, so you may be wondering, 
what happened at Hiroshima? Oh, you probably do. You probably heard about it. You know. I have heard yes. of Hiroshima. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, quite a big historic uh, event. So on August the 6th, 1945, a uranium fission bomb, fission bomb was detonated over the Japanese city of Hiroshima. The bomb called Little Boy was a gun-type device which used an explosive charge to force two subcritical masses of uranium-235 together. It was 28 inches in diameter and 100, 120 inches long, a relatively small package to de- deliver an explosive force of some 20,000 tonnes of TNT by converting about one gram of matter into energy. This could be accomplished with a sphere of uranium-235 about the size of a baseball. Uh, this kind of device had never been tested, in contrast to the plutonium bomb which was dropped on Nagasaki three days later. No device like this has been used since, making the estimates of radiation exposure at Hiroshima very difficult. Casualties included both direct blast victims, plus those who died from radiation-induced cancer in subsequent years. The bomb was triggered to explode at a height of 550 metres, a height calculated to cause the widest area of damage. In the detonation of the uranium fission bomb over Hiroshima, about 130,000 people were reported killed, injured or missing, and another 177,000 were made homeless. So that's that. A lot of people. Yeah. Um, I always get the... Yeah, I keep saying this every week, but I always end on like a really down note. But, you know, that's you know that's history. Yeah. That's the, the so that's that's what happens in an uncontrolled uh, nuclear reaction. Yeah. You know, you've got all this energy and it just explodes. And then, as you say, the, the problem is as well is that obviously if the waste isn't contained, then the radiation from it can cause uh, cancer and other yeah. problems. And then you've obviously got like Chernobyl and stuff like that where you'll have, you know, long-lasting effects after the events that just stay around. Yeah, They, just, they don't go away, which is... Mm. I think that's the big scare about nuclear energy. Yeah, and it's a really important part of history. And obviously there are still atomic weapons being developed in places, you know, today. And, well, there are existing ones that are being stockpiled, but then other countries are are producing their own, which is... Well, you know, whatever you think about it as a fuel source, I think we can all agree that really, really powerful bombs are not a great thing. Not a good idea. No, no. We're coming up to the end of the show, but there's just about time for Secret Scientist. Woo. Everyone's second favourite scientist. <laughs> game. So, you've got three uh, singers today. That's what we're going with. And the three singers are Lily Allen, uh, the singer and cellist from Clean Bandit, whose name is Grace Chateau, and Emily Sande. Uh, well, my first thoughts are that it's not Lily Allen because she's from a family who who like like I think her dad was or had a song or was an actor um, and then you've got Alfie Allen as well who was in Game of Thrones mm-hmm. so I'm going to rule oh, yeah. Lily Allen out I don't know I don't know Strong. why that's my logic but anyway um, and then so Emily Sandy do you want to I think I'm going to go for the clean band at Grace Chateau was her name I yeah, don't know Grace I just feel like so so why not yeah. why not the why not Emily Sandy I don't, I don't know. I just have, I have a gut feeling. I'm going to go with it. Is it because she's not as well known? So you... Yeah, so I, I'm so more likely to be. It's not, not as much of a household name. I'm going to, yeah, yeah well, you know what? I'll just, I'll be devil's advocate and I'll say that Emily Sunday is the secret scientist here. I haven't got any reason why, but. Just to just to cause controversy. Right, well, there we go. Yes. Uh, Joe is correct. Uh, yes. No. Sunday. So you're absolutely right about Lillian. I think it was at that her parents were involved yeah, in. Yeah, I think he's got a World Cup... No, no, sorry, there's like a famous video of him singing. 
I don't know why I brought this up. There's a famous uh, from singing a World Cup song this year uh-huh. at a local pub that was that kind of went viral. Okay. Yeah, that but was funny. But. She left school at 15 anyway. Uh, the Clean Bandits cellist uh, did modern languages. She speaks fluent Russian, so that's pretty cool. But Emily Sandate did neuroscience at Glasgow oh, University. They got neuroscience <laughs> they as got well. Neuroscience. So she was offered a record deal at 16, but turned it down because... For she, neuroscience. Because she, well, so she actually started doing medicine, but then because oh, wow. the singing was kicking off so much, she left after getting the neuroscience... Dr. Sunday. <laughs> ...degree. Um, so... Yeah, I assume after three years. She described herself as very shy, nerdy, and extremely well-behaved at school, which may be something to do with the fact that her dad was a teacher at the school that Uh, she was at. But there we go. Incidentally, the original lead singer of Clean Bandit, whose name is Sagawa Sakintu Kiwanuka, left Clean Bandit to do a PhD in laser analytics. He's a chemical engineer. Wow. And yeah, so Clean Bandit was uh, formed by a, a group of friends at Cambridge. Um, and yeah, he was like, now nah, I'm going to stay and do a PhD. And then. And then obviously Clean Bandit <laughs> went, went to yeah. take over the world. Yeah. Well, not the world, but they had a pretty good career. Or... So he, seemed, he seems pretty happy with what he's doing. Yeah. He's in yeah. China at the moment on some like music. Uh, I don't even know how music to thing. describe it. A music thing, yeah. So he seems to be. He's do. He does all sorts. He's a boxer as well. He's oh right, yeah, cool guy. Anyway, there we go. That was Secret Scientist. We're pretty much out of time now. Follow us on Facebook. No, not follow us on like us on Facebook. like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. So we're elementary. Or, if you're a FM. boomer, email us. <laughs> <laughs> Boom is your new favourite word, isn't <laughs> it? Yes, yeah. yeah, so you can email us at elementary underscore fuse FM, is that right? Yes, <laughs> at Outlook. At Outlook.com. Yeah, elementary underscore fuse FM at Outlook.com. I've been doing this for eight weeks. I should know by now. Anyway, uh, we've been elementary. Hope you've enjoyed the show today and have a lovely week.